Hello, everyone, and welcome to Unconventional OT. This is a podcast run by two OTD students who are dedicated to advocacy. On this podcast, we will interview OTs who are bringing innovation to life, overcoming barriers, and practicing in non-traditional areas. This podcast is intended to be used as a complimentary tool for the website unconventionalot.com. The website provides resources and guidance to help reduce some of the preparatory work required for beginning to practice in non-traditional areas. Both the podcast and the website are components of a capstone project and will continue to be developed over time. The views of this podcast should be considered our own and are intended for educational purposes only. At times, this podcast may discuss topics that are not appropriate for children, so listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Kate. And I'm Jess. Welcome back to Unconventional OT. Today, we will be delving into OT's application with individuals who have an eating disorder. Now, to be honest, until recently, I've had very limited knowledge on this topic, but throughout my research, I have found myself increasingly interested. I was shocked to learn through the National Association of Anorexia Nervosa and Associated Disorders website that over 30 million people in the U.S. alone suffer from an eating disorder. I also found that eating disorders have the highest mortality rate of any mental illness, resulting in at least one person passing away every 62 minutes. Now, I was blown away by this information because throughout my life, I have sought out discussions and education pertaining to mental health, but I've heard so little about eating disorders. So today, I am pleased to say that we have Dr. Theus Petroselli here to not only talk about eating disorder recovery, but also OT's specific role with this population. Thank you for agreeing to speak with us today, Dr. Petroselli, and welcome. Thank you. It's so glad. I'm so really happy to be here and talk with you guys about this. Not many people... um are super interested in this topic right away. So I'm glad you did some research and kind of got pulled into it. I just find it so fascinating that when we speak about mental health, we're primarily having discussions about schizophrenia, depression, bipolar, anxiety, OCD. And even though those populations are just as important, I find it so fascinating that we're leaving eating disorders out of the conversation when there's such a high prevalence and such a high mortality rate. So I'm really looking forward to learning from you and from continuing my research into this area. I completely agree, Jess. And thank you so much, Dr. Petroselli. I'm really looking forward to hearing your perspective on the subject. So to start, can you just give us a brief summary of your professional background and your experience working with the population with eating disorders? Of course. So I'm kind of what you would say a generalist OT. So I have a lot of experience in a lot of areas just because I went into OT to kind of explore everything. Um, I came out of school and I worked for five years at a state psychiatric hospital. And it was after that I was looking to kind of move on and learn some new things and and find out some things that I got offered a really interesting position where I worked part-time in an acute care part of the hospital. So ICUs, the general medical floors, and then the rest of the day was spent on the eating disorder unit. This actually morphed into then a full-time position in the eating disorder for a a few, few months, but this was my first exposure to eating disorders. After that, I kind of explored pediatrics. I've worked in schools. I've worked in subacutes. I did a small stint in home care. Um, I did early intervention. I was a fieldwork coordinator, and now I'm an assistant professor. So 
I'm kind of one of those high 57 OTs um, that kind of likes to explore the field. And, and my passions really are mental health, community-based practice, um, student learning. Um, so I kind of am all over the place. I love that. I too hope to one day be a Heinz 57 type of OT. It's the major perk of the profession, right? Is having such opportunity to explore different avenues and build different skill sets. Could you go on to explain to us what is an eating disorder and what are some of the different types? Yes, and you know this is kind of ever-changing. So as you know, APA kind of comes out with a new DSM, they kind of shift these classifications around a little bit. Um, so I'll kind of go off the past iteration. So we all know anorexia and bulimia are our big ones. These are the ones that are, they're part of a, a eating disorder as a whole kind of area in the DSM. And there's six major ones. Let's see if I can remember them all. So it's anorexia, bulimia, um, binge eating disorder, rumination disorder, pica, and then there's a new one called avoiding eating disorder, which is kind of like infant feeding syndrome. It's a pediatric diagnosis. Um, there's also always eating disorder, not other specified and, and all these subtypes as, as well. So it really has to do with the relationship someone has with food and the relationship they have with body image in relation to food. Um, it's, it's, they vary per types. The major ones that I saw when I treated them were anorexia and bulimia. Um, those were the ones that were getting hospitalized because there were such significant medical symptoms related to them. Now, that's not to say that I haven't seen other ones. I've seen pica in um, pediatrics, and I've seen it in intellectual and developmental disabilities, as well as when I worked in the inpatient psychiatric hospital as well. Um, but really, it is a marked obsession with food or body shape. And it, they really can affect everyone, but it's very prevalent, especially anorexia and bulimia in young women. So of course, the exact cause of eating disorders is unknown, but they generally have been agreed to develop as a result of multiple factors. So to your understanding, what are some of the factors that contribute to a person having an eating disorder? Yeah, it's really interesting that you brought up these multiple factors. So I think that as society as a whole, we get very frustrated when there's not one single cause to things, right? We just want an answer. We love things that are easy peasy, yes, no, black and white. And, and eating disorders is not one of those things. An interesting fact, and if you start looking at the literature, is that eating disorders are more prevalent in certain cultures across the world. So it's more prevalent in a um, more developed country. And that has to do with body image. And it also has to do with cultures that value thinness as a cultural norm. So there's a piece of that in there too. Aside from that, aside from societal effects, um, there is some small genetic component they're talking about when you look at some of the research. Um, there is family structure, there is family modeling. Um, a lot of what I saw and a lot of what the literature is coming out now is it's related to anxiety and OCD. There's a strong correlation there. And with all of those things, eating disorders, OCD, anxiety, panic disorder, um, there is a strong correlation to trauma. And trauma inflicted as a child, trauma inflicted as an adult, there is typically a very strong correlation. And I'll tell you that when I worked inpatient, I would venture to guess 80 to 85% of my clients had some sort of trauma that occurred in their life. That's really interesting. So for most of your clients that had a diagnosis of eating disorder, did they also typically carry an actual diagnosis of OCD or anxiety disorders of some sort? Or was that just kind of like a noticeable uh, behavior? 
No, I would say I would say a majority of them carried a secondary diagnosis: depression, major depressive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, panic disorder, OCD. Um, you know, I did have some clients who had bipolar disorder once in a while, um, schizophrenia, or more significantly chronic mental illness. Um, a lot of them had a secondary diagnosis of substance use disorder, but it usually was directly related to one of the primary diagnoses of the eating disorder or the depression. Um, really interesting. A lot of the substance use we saw was either them trying to deal with their depression or using the substance to help induce an anorexia. For instance, um, cocaine um, helps you stay thin. So I had clients who would abuse cocaine because they knew it would help them stay thin. Okay. So what interested you the most about working with clients seeking recovery from eating disorders? You know, I'd spent the first five years, as I mentioned, in an inpatient psychiatric hospital, um, and it was a state hospital. So we had probably the most significantly ill clients in the state. A lot of them had chronic mental illness, um, and I kind of saw every diagnosis under the sun there. I actually learned a ton there. Um, it was really interesting. I worked a lot with community reentry, but I also worked a lot with the very psychotic clients who were coming in and really needed basic OT skills. When I was looking to make a change, I kind of almost wanted to specialize, if that makes sense. I didn't want to specialize, but I was kind of looking to advance the skills I had learned in this general psychiatric population and move it forward. You know, I'd also looked at jobs with um, something called a PAC team, which is a community-based treatment team. Um, and then this job kind of came up, and I was also interested in exploring the medical side. You know, when I was working in inpatient psych, I also was working in a nursing home to pay off student loans. And I know pretty much every one of our listeners can relate to that. <laughs> Um, so I was kind of looking for like this really cool job and this job came up. And at first I will tell you the eating disorders. I was like, okay, I'm looking for a specialty in psych, but am I up for this? Cause it, it was daunting. Um, but once I got there, it was one of those jobs that I will never forget. Cause I learned so much and I learned not just so much as a clinician. I learned so much about myself and I learned so much as a human being. Yeah, I believe it. I feel like I hear that all the time that like OTs kind of just fall into a position and then they're like, wait, this is so interesting. And then just like delve yes. deeper and deeper and deeper. Yes. A hundred percent. So going into the heart of OT, um, how does an eating disorder affect an individual's occupational engagement? So could it be like cognition, social participation, self-image? It's everything. So it's not just about eating. And I think that's, probably one of the most common misconceptions, you know, and I really got a glimpse of the stigma when I used to tell people where I was working, what I was doing. So they'd be like, oh, just make them eat. So are you like force feeding them? Are you just showing them how to use a fork? And it really was not about that. Eating was a piece of it. It was an occupation that they didn't want to do, but it really went back to a lot of other occupation and occupation that needs to be addressed. And it's all those things you mentioned. So the big ones I saw were decreased social participation and very poor self-image, self-esteem, self-worth. The other piece of it is we did see, you know, I know your follow-up question here has to do with occupational deprivation. Um, these clients had zero idea and zero engagement in leisure. They had no idea how to engage in leisure. They had no idea how to have fun. They had no idea how to connect with others to have fun because their life was focused on the eating disorder. So they neglected so many occupations because the only occupation that was the center of their life was this eating disorder. It was the only thing they were engaging in. So it's really interesting. 
And then, of course, you have your secondary things because, as you mentioned earlier, these clients are not just dealing with a mental illness. They are dealing with the physical ramifications of an eating disorder. So you had decreased endurance. You had decreased um, ability to tolerate activities. You had decreased a level of arousal. Sometimes I've had clients fall asleep in groups. They just didn't have enough energy to keep their bodies awake. And with that, also, sometimes we get clients that did have decreased cognition. And that that's actually when things used to get scary is when I'd have a client and unfortunately I would see a lot of repeat clients and I would notice that their cognition was declining essentially because they were starving their bodies. So you just mentioned in that, that uh, sometimes, you know, someone would fall asleep during group. Does that mean that you primarily led groups for this population or did you often have one-on-one treatment uh, sessions with them as well? So that's a great question. So I was actually pulled in multiple facets. So the program I worked in had an inpatient component. And then when they were discharged from inpatient, they would go to um, partial hospitalization and intensive outpatient. So I'd have groups over there. So they actually were able to bill me. So I was running mostly groups. That being said, I did take on some one-to-one clients as my schedule allowed me to. Um, I wish I had time, had more time for one-to-one. I know the OT that actually works there now. She was actually one of my students way back when. Um, And she does have more time because she's on the unit 100% full-time now, 40 hours a week to do one-to-ones. But a lot of what I did was group. And that that was very challenging as a clinician because um, of the wide variety of eating disorders and presentations at cognitive levels and age levels I had in the group. Right. Yeah, I'm sure that was very challenging. Um, So what exactly is the role of an OT on the interprofessional team? So the role of OT in the interprofessional team really is to focus on occupation. Um, You know, everyone has their role on the team. And a lot of times that occupation is left out. And our ability to really hone in on specific occupations and bring them to the attention of the therapist, the nurses, the doctor is what is essential there. So we are looking at, you know, not just occupation, we're also looking at habits, roles, and routines. It's that viewpoint that brings that unique OT to, to that client. So, you know, we're reminding treatment team about habits and about their roles and how, you know, poor roles can lead to poor routines. Um, you know, I did a lot of stuff with self-esteem, a lot of stuff with self-worth. We were starting to do stuff with sensory because we had a lot of clients that had um, sensory issues related to food. Um, I did a lot of stuff with leisure that no one else was doing, a lot of stuff with social interaction no one was doing. So it was finding those areas of occupation that most of our clients were lacking that other members of the team, frankly, just didn't have either specialization or the time to address it because our teams were busy. Really, these clients required a very holistic, intensive team to get them on their road for recovery. For your facility, who all was really involved in the interprofessional team? Yeah, that's a great question because it does vary from facility to facility. So just so you know, I worked in a facility in New Jersey. We had, at the time I was on the facility, there were two inpatient programs in the entire state of New Jersey. So that kind of gives you a glimpse into how little inpatient beds are available. So New Jersey is a pretty populous state and there was only two facilities in the whole state that did inpatient. There were other facilities that did outpatient, intensive outpatient, but we were the only ones that had beds. And our team was 
pretty comprehensive. So um, we had an excellent nursing team um, who not only did the medical side, but they were running groups, um, doing medication management. They were doing um, some group therapy. They were in charge of meals. Meals were considered therapeutic groups. Um, we had nursing techs who were fabulous. We also called them psych techs. That's kind of the lingo. We had nutritionists who almost were the head of the team. Um, every client got a therapist and our therapists were either, um, PsyDs or they, a lot of them were, um, master's level social work, licensed clinical social workers. Um, we had medical doctor that would come on and consult. Um, and oftentimes that would mean also cardiology was frequently there, um, because of the correlation between, um, anorexia, bulimia and cardiac problems. Um, and then the whole team was kind of led by a psychiatrist. Um, and they did a lot of med management, but they also did a lot of coordination of, um, you know, how the caseload was assigned. They ran treatment teams, they ran family meetings, that sort of thing. Um, it really was probably one of the most intense yet rewarding team experiences I've gotten to work with because I was very fortunate that who led this team was very respectful of OT and very much advocated for OT and felt that OT was an essential piece of the team, um, which was fabulous. Um, it's also important to note that some people, because we were in a hospital setting, would come in and consult. So it might vary. And we also had a teacher on staff and because a lot of our clients were below 21 and had not graduated from high school. So they were legally required to provide school for these um, students slash patients. Wow, that's really interesting. I wouldn't have guessed that a teacher would be a part of it, but I can see why yeah. they, you know, they were a part of it. Now, maybe I missed it, but did you mention whether or not uh, you had physical therapists on your team as well? We did not. Okay. We did not. Um, occasionally, um, so, you know, I worked partly on the medical side, so I had a good report with the PTs. Occasionally, they would get a referral to come in because our clients were deconditioned or needed stuff. Um, a lot of clients had exercise restriction. Um, and I will tell you that the PTs, and I love them, and some of them are still my friends, um, they sometimes really didn't want to go to that unit and they were very afraid to. And sometimes it almost pawn it off on me and be like, can you get the doctor to change that referral to OT so you can just look at the gate and give out the walker? And I'm like, I can. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's not typically the role like in that hospital setting, but I totally can. It was really interesting because our PTs were very much not sure how they fit in there and they were uncomfortable there. Um, if they were comfortable going, I would, they would usually want me around or included. Um, I, I'm not sure why it just was the culture of that hospital. Mm -hmm. Um, and I do know there are sites that have PTs and they've really focused on, I think the conditioning, um, because you really can have a significant amount of muscle loss. Um, a lot of our clients were on fall precautions. A lot of our clients, it was very common to have a 15 or 16 year old on fall precautions. Um, so, you know, I would have welcomed a PT there and I think we could have made an awesome team because honestly, there were just not things I could get to because I was stretched. Right. Yeah. Cause when I was doing research, um, I found that a local hospital here to me called Denver health, they have an eating disorder unit and they do have PTs as a part of it. And I was a little surprised, although I could see a purpose that they would fill there. Um, but I was wondering if that was kind of typical, uh, because it, it wouldn't seem like it would be. I don't know that it's typical, um, unless it's for a specific injury or illness, mm -hmm. um, that's being treated, at least from my experience. I know that they don't have a PT currently on the unit. I used to work on either. Sure. 
Okay. So it sounds like you did mostly groups, but some individual treatment sessions. Were there any assessments that you found more appropriate for eating disorder clients or did you use assessments? Yes. So, you know, under our practice, best practices, even if group is an intervention, right? On the OTPF. Right. Um, so we're, we evaled everyone that came on. So I had to do an evaluation within 24 hours of them being admitted, which I hustled. Um, and my eval was based on the OTPF. So it was a form and I'd, I'd comment on sections of the OTPF on the form. And then if I needed further information, there was probably two assessments I used the most. Um, and that would be the COPM. And I love, there's this, it's kind of a regional assessment. I love it. It is in our site class um, here at USA. Um, it's called the Barth Time Construction. And it really looks at how someone spends their week and what they do with their time during the week. And it was very useful in telling to see where some occupational deficits were. Um, so in the Barth Time Construction, red usually means drugs or alcohol. And I used to tell the clients that they could use reds for drugs, alcohol, or engagement in eating disorder behavior. And I'll tell you, those, those time constructions, those time sheets were just covered in red and was very telling about what was missing, what was lacking. Um, so those were the two major ones I use. Occasionally, I would have a client that had some um, upper extremity issues, so I'd use the DASH. Um, um, for some of my fall clients, we'd use um, Berg Balance um, just to get a baseline, and that was mostly in conjunction with nursing. So with the Barth time construction assessment, it sounds like the client would require a high level of self-awareness in order to be able to re really reflect honestly on their time um, spent in these different occupations or uh, thought patterns. Did that ever uh, pose as a challenge for you? You know, did you have clients that were really unaware of the fact that they were spending such a significant amount of time um, concerned about their eating disorder? Yes, of course. Just like any assessment, it has its it has its um its boundaries. Um and I didn't use it all the time. I would use it when I knew that I would get a good result from it. Not that I was skewing it, but if I knew the client was cognitively able to do it and would prove one or two things. It would prove that they didn't have any great insight, or it would prove that they were spending majority of time doing eating disorder behaviors and then they could have this physical representation of what was going on. I will say most of my clients were extremely bright, extremely cognizant, extremely intelligent young ladies and a few young men. Um, so them getting through an eval wasn't a problem. It was how they were answering it. A lot of my minors, so clients under 18, even though it's a voluntary unit, they were quite angry that their parents had placed there. So, you know, I got a lot of people who would curse at me or shove a paper at me or throw a pen at me. That was pretty common. Sure. <laughs> so, you know, that's your cue that we're not going to do an assessment today. We're just going to talk. And I, by talking, I usually can get a pretty good occupational profile. Right, right. Okay. Um, you know, it, sometimes students, like, you just want to get your assessment done. And you're like, I just need to get this assessment done. And it's not going to be useful if the client is telling you to go, like, jump off a cliff. Um, so that's when you have to, like, put your OT scary stuff away and just sit and have a conversation. Because a lot of times you can get really great information for a really comprehensive occupational profile from from one-to-one -one conversation and interacting one-to-one. -one. Right. Okay. And so... Which types of frames of references or models uh, do you find is most common for addressing eating disorders? Like, did you use uh, CBT or DBT prominently? 
So, you know, CBT, DBT were the basis for what a lot of treatment was being done, even outside of my profession on the unit. Um, I have had one or two courses in DBT, but really to do DBT extensively, you should have a cert specific certification. Um, that being said, I was on the unit right at the time that people finally realized that the concepts of DBT could be used for people other than people with borderline personality. So they're like, huh, everyone could use mindfulness. This is, this is helpful. So we, I use CBT, DBT a lot. I really relied a lot on moho, you know, habits, volition, I think are very important and very useful in this um, population. Um, and I will tell you, I, when I started learning more about Kawa, really interesting way to, to relate to a client and to treat a client and to really look at a client holistically. Um, and I had some great success with using Kawa. And I know that my um, colleagues who came after me as OTs there have heavily relied on Kawa on that unit. Yeah, I think those all make a lot of sense to me. Those seem like a good fit. Um, so can you kind of describe what a typical treatment session would look like? So sure. what kind of treatments you use and how it translates into a session? Yeah, it really was interesting. So I basically got assigned blanket groups, which was kind of nice because I was coming from a setting where um, while I was the OT, I kind of had groups that had to stay within specific topics. So they're like, when I worked at state hospital, I was like, this is a community reentry group. This is a social group. This is a um, coping skills group. Here, everything was just OT group. So the great thing was I could really look at my assessment results and plan a group. I spent a lot of time um, focusing on things like habits, roles, routines, coping skills, body image, some sensory stuff, and leisure. These are clients who, they didn't know how to play a game. They didn't know how to play a game and socially interact with each other. Um, so we spent a lot of time with social and um, leisure skills, much more than I envisioned before I got there. I was expecting the typical self-image, body image, self-esteem, but really, I really started leaning towards a lot of leisure skills, a lot of social skills. I also had started um, a food prep group on the unit. We did not have access to the kitchen, but um, with nutritionist permission and a medical order, I used to be able to order some things from the kitchen. So we started doing once a week, a small food prep group, and it was mostly no-bake things. So fruit salads, um, we did cookie decorating, which was very traumatic, but very helpful. Um, we did some light sandwich prep and that was really just to show people how they can make their own snacks because a lot of these clients never even wanted to touch food see food it was overwhelming um so the nice thing was i had a lot of freedom and my groups could change i'll tell you when i my group skewed younger i used a lot of crafts i used a lot of crafts and i don't mean to generalize i i don't mean to this to come off as sexist or, or anything but i mean teenage girls love glitter and glue <laughs> so <laughs> I mean, you have to use modalities and treatments and interventions that are going to interest them, else they're just going to sit in the corner um, and pout. And I unfortunately had a lot of times where my time slot was after psychotherapy group. So these clients had spent an hour basically pouring their, house off, their hearts out, crying, being upset, being mad, and then I got them. <laughs> Oh yeah. So a lot of times, yeah. So a lot of times it's like, okay, guys, let's just do, let's just do a, a quirky icebreaker. Let's 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 play five minutes of catchphrase, um, which is essentially heads up. Like, let's just do five minutes of something to get our brain set, and then we're going to come back to the activity. And I always try to do something somewhat active. 
um, where they either had to move or they had to use a craft or it had to be something where we're not just sitting with like a photocopy piece of paper and talking because they had had that all day long. The one interesting thing I'd be wary of is a lot of them were on activity restrictions. So I had to be very careful with yoga. I had to be very careful. Like these are kind of your go-to things. I'd be very careful with yoga, Tai Chi. I also had to be very careful with any sort of relaxation techniques because of the history of trauma most of my clients had. Um, So things like guided imagery, you know, turning the lights off, anything like that. I had to be very careful of who was in my group because a lot of them had suffered trauma. Um, and guided imagery, some and trauma, especially in the early stages, don't really mix well. So it was it was a learning experience for me, um, and being creative was definitely a learning experience for me. Um, but it was a time really where I was like, yeah, this is OT. I'm being creative, and I'm being really looking at what's going to bring them into the session. So being mindful of that trauma and not implementing things like guided imagery, especially in the beginning as such, would you consider that trauma informed care? Because that's kind of a phrase that gets thrown around a lot uh, when it comes to mental health, especially in OT. Uh, So would you consider that or how would you define trauma informed care? Yeah, you know, um, nationally, there's been a push to integrate trauma informed care into almost all psychiatric care. And I'll tell you, this was not the norm when I came out of school and I was working in state psychiatric hospital, um, we weren't, we were talking about some trauma, but we weren't really talking about it and looking at it as being a driver. Um, And I would say, you know, me, myself and my colleagues made some mistakes early on in my career because we were not really thinking about trauma informed care. It's a federal push. It is coming from the highest levels of research that our interventions need to be informed Um, through trauma and knowing our clients' trauma experiences and what causes trauma and what trauma they might be um, reliving. So when I went into the eating disorder unit was kind of when all this literature and evidence was hitting. So everyone was shifting their mindset and really it, it was kind of essential, especially with this client population where trauma for many of them was a significant part of their eating disorder. Right. And so how do recovery principles apply to this population? So what do you mean by that exactly? Yeah, well, I guess like like, as a component of like the recovery model. So looking at Mm -hmm. it being person first and holistic, uh, a lot of times incorporating like peer support. Mm -hmm. Yes, all of the things. The recovery model is super important. Um, You know, the main thrust and the kind of the mantra of the unit unofficially was these clients need to be in the driver's seat for, for many of them, they never had had control before. So a lot of what we did was trying to give them a sense of control outside of their eating disorder. Many of our clients had been in situations or had a trauma that made them feel like they didn't have control over anything except their eating disorder. So putting them in control of their own recovery was essential, whether they wanted it or not. (laughs) Um, And really a lot of that was done through, you know, very basic recovery principles, including peer support. Peer support was a big piece of what happened here. That psychotherapy group I talked about was very much based on peer support. When they stepped down to a lower level of care, um, a lot of it was based on peer support. We had, um, there were several peer run recovery groups an outpatient that occurred at the evening. So there was no clinicians there. It was more of a self-help group. So um, it was very important for us to, to give clients control back in a way that they could do it in a healthy manner in a way that didn't involve their eating disorder. 
So um, how does addressing an eating disorder differ between the adult population and the pediatric population? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, probably one of the most unique things about working on this particular unit was that there would be times where I would have a 10-year-old in group and then I'd have someone who was 58 in group. Oh, wow. And I'll tell you, planning a group for a 10-year-old and a 58-year-old is mind-blowing. A challenge. Um, <laughs> It's a challenge. It's a challenge. Um, and I think it's very important that you have a strong understanding of child development and where someone is in child development, um, cognitively, emotionally, physically, um, because it does make a difference. You know, I would tweak my content. Um, you know, there were topics maybe we wouldn't talk about as much of a 10 or 11 year old was in the group versus if it's skewed older. Um, in the adult population, a lot of these clients were, had different roles. So it's really acknowledging what that singular client's role is. So a lot of my older clients had, you know, families, they were parents, um, they had held full-time jobs where, you know, my, my younger kids, they were students, they were daughters, they were sons, um, they were children. Um, even with my younger kids, it's looking at, are, do they engage in play? Is play still an important piece of their development? Should we be addressing play? Um, and, and, and kind of finding that difference. Um, you know, I have to say across the board, my clients were super, super intelligent, even my younger clients. So cognitively, it wasn't so much of, as an issue. Um, but it really was important to keep mindful of where someone was in their phase of development. So I'm curious, when you had participants in a group like that, that had such a wide age gap, I, did you find that the clients were affected by that? Like, I can imagine as an adult, maybe you'd be concerned, like, okay, I'm getting the same type of treatment as a 10-year-old here. And clearly, you know, my needs are different. And as you said, you try to meet those different needs as best as you can. Mm -hmm. But did you ever find that you know, the participants kind of had a little bit of pushback based on that experience? So it almost wasn't pushback. It's almost as if it made them more upset or depressed about a situation. So many of my older clients, and there weren't that many of them, I would say the average age of a client on the unit was 16, 17. Um, you know, they were upset that someone was there that young because that was them. And now they had lived 40 years with that and they did not want to see someone else that young have to struggle as much as they had struggled their whole life. So it was almost with the adult, it was almost addressing that emotional component that they're dealing with someone so young there. And it would go one or two ways. Either they would be so upset they couldn't deal with it, or they'd almost mentor the younger child, um, the younger client, um, and kind of say, I don't know, be supportive, really push them along, really boost their self-esteem. So it would go one or two way. I would find that my clients that had kids would really almost be drawn to them because they would take on that, that parent role, right. which could not and could be health, healthy, like depending on how you looked at it. Um, but it would go one of two ways. A lot of times they would express words of regret, words of feeling more depressed and really upset that this had been them 40 years ago. And how come they didn't make the change when this child was making the change, that sort of thing. Right. That makes sense. So being that eating disorder recovery is so complex, does working with this population require a special certification as an OT? It does not. It does not. Um, I do think that it is important that you 
um, are constantly working on your CEUs and seeking out um, continuing ed units. Um, I do think there's some certifications that might be helpful. I think having taken some courses in sensor integration is helpful. I think that either exploring becoming DBT certified or at least taking some courses in DBT is helpful. Um, AOTA does offer a mental health clinician certificate. They're actually renovating, revising the process to do it right now. That could be something you could pursue. I think that as someone who's transitioned from many aspects of the field, it's always coming back to your core is what's important, but it's always acknowledging that you should be seeking out information as well. What are the best practices? What does the evidence say? Um, there is an OT and eating disorder textbook out there. Like, what does that say? Um, networking, that sort of thing is important because it doesn't require a special certification, but it, it requires a specific skill set that you need to constantly be honing. So did you personally have a, a mentor? That's a really good question. I have like a whole thing about mentors. Um, I have, my feeling on mentors is that you should have multiple mentors. So I did not have a specific OT and eating disorder mentor person I knew, but I had people in my life who would mentor me in certain aspects. So I had two nurses I looked up to highly on that unit and would ask tons and tons of questions of. Um, one was a nurse practitioner and one was the head nurse. Um, and for me, they really filled in all those gaps on the medical side, on the condition, on the medical aspects, on um, even just some of the psychosocial aspects. Um, I had an OT mentor, my old boss, my previous job has always been my mentor in mental health. So she was someone I could seek out if I had questions about a group, about theory, about a way to approach a problem. Um, I had other OTs I worked with who had worked in various settings and they had some advice. So for me, it's always when you're finding a mentor, it's sometimes not just one person, it's multiple people who can serve multiple needs, especially if you're in a niche practice area where there really aren't a ton of eating disorder OTs out there. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so in the research, I found that burnout is pretty common for OTs addressing eating disorders, even though they found the work to be very professionally rewarding. Did you experience this as well? Yes. And I'm always very honest with students about burnout. It's important to recognize burnout um, before it gets to the point that someone would call you burnt out. Um, <laughs> eating disorders was extremely rewarding. I loved that team. I still keep in contact with a lot of those team members, but it is so personal. Um, it is so personal, even as I guess a female in American society, it really makes you personally examine your thoughts on diet culture, your thoughts on body image, your thoughts on disordered eating. Um, it, it's sometimes hard to go from working on the eating disorder and then go back to society and be bombarded with all this information that you know to be not real. And then you're realizing that your clients can't make that determination and, 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 and searching for that, it can be difficult. Um, it, can be taxing because you see a lot of clients who come back frequently. It is very chronic. Um, you mentioned in your introduction, it is probably one of the most medically severe um, mental illnesses. I have had clients die from eating disorder and die at a young age, you know, 16, 17, 18. And I think that takes a toll, um, certainly takes a toll. As I've aged, so to say, <laughs> this was only, you know, five, six years in, I would highly recommend to any OT working in a mental health arena that they also seek out therapy themselves, counseling, someone else to bounce things off of to help prevent burnout. <clears throat> um, 
I was still performing at a high level. I probably could have stayed a little longer, but I'm starting to recognize that it was taking a toll on me. And that's when I kind of moseyed on from that position because it, it was, it was burnout is a real thing. Um, and especially in eating disorders, because these clients, uh, it can be fatal. It really can be fatal. Um, and a lot of these clients were people who were in living in my community too, you know, cause the HIPAA, we had to keep that kind of a secret, but you know, I, it would be common that I'd be driving to work and seeing one of the clients over exercising, running up and down a street. Oh, so sure. it was kind of carrying over into my personal life. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. And I think that's something we should be talking about as a profession as a whole, because we don't talk about it enough because we're caring people and we're helping people. It doesn't mean that we don't then all take that on and internalize it. Yeah. I think right. you made a really good point about like practitioners seeking out like mental treatment and like therapy, because I'm like a true believer that everybody could use therapy so Truth. like Agreed. You, just, you really bring like work home with you sometimes and it's like inevitable. So I think that's like a really great point. Yeah. It's so fun. Like I, you know, when I worked in the psych hospital, I learned so much and it was hard and I took a lot on and my clients were chronically ill, but there it just, it was so much more than that because of you really examined the entire culture you were brought up in, which is so interesting. Like magazine ads. I look, I never have looked at them the same now. Um, I've never looked at, you know, everyone always talks about the latest diet, the latest fad. I, I no longer, I, I almost get upset sometimes when people perseverate over diets or fads because of what I know from working in eating disorders. Um, I get upset when people make remarks about like their daughters or, or a peer's body. And I'm just kind of like, oh my gosh, like, can we stop? <laughs> Especially knowing that the research says that eating disorders are not as prevalent in countries that don't put this emphasis on thinness or diet culture. So it really contributes to it. But yeah, I'm a huge proponent. I think it's so funny that we talk about as OTs, like we're always like, oh, break the stigma, break the stigma. But the minute we recommend someone go seek out therapists or counseling for their own burnout, we, we clam right up and we're like, oh, why would we do that? Right. <laughs> So did you find it challenging to be the only OT on your team? Um, you know, I didn't mind it so much, to be honest with you. I Because I worked with a lot of OTs at my previous job, but we were still kind of autonomous because we worked in different areas of the um, hospital. So I didn't so much like it because I'm I'm very much into interprofessional education, interprofessional collaboration. Um I, I kind of liked it. <laughs> yeah. It was hard to get someone. It was hard to get someone to cover my vacation. Um, <laughs> that always was the issue because the OTs on the medical side were kind of afraid of my girls. <laughs> you know, a lot of the the clients had major biting sarcasm, which I appreciate, but not every OT appreciates biting sarcasm. So, in other countries, it appears that much of the work with eating disorders are within community-based programs, whereas here it seems that most of them are inpatient programs within hospitals. Is that accurate? I would say a majority of the eating disorder programs are within a hospital because of significant medical risks. Um, there actually aren't that many. If you look at the general population, a lot of it, and a lot of those hospital programs have a connected outpatient component. So a partial hospitalization or PHP and an intensive outpatient IOP and some places only offer that. So yes. Do I think we could do more in the community? Absolutely. Do we have enough day programs to deal with this? Absolutely not. Um, I think it's a double-edged sword though. Um, I love community practice. Let's, let's, 
put that out there. Like, it's my favorite thing ever. I want to be out in the community. I want to be doing things. Um, sometimes we had to remove that client from their home environment because it was super toxic. And community-based care just wasn't going to work. It also wasn't going to work medically. Like, some of our clients were on heart monitors because their hearts were stopping. So we needed that level of care for some of our clients. That being said, it's also interesting to note that there is another level of care called residential. And that's when the client actually leaves and goes to live somewhere for 90 to 120 days. Renfrew is the famous one here in Florida. There's quite a few out in Colorado, Minnesota. So there are different things in the United States that are out there. And they may not come up in a search because they don't appear to be super community-based, but they kind of are. Um, but that being said, we can always do better. We can always do better. We can always be having more integration of community-based services. Um, you know, community-based services across the board for all mental illness really needs a good shot of funding and a good shot of research here in the United States. Right. And as RTs, we know the importance of an environment on a client and their occupational performance. And so I was just kind of curious because it seems like, you know, strictly community-based where they're primarily at home could perpetuate the issue, but being in an inpatient facility could also be so distinct from their normal daily life that it would be hard to apply, you know, what they've learned during the program and translate it at home. And of course, that's part of our job is to help them do that. But I think like a residential Mm -hmm. program would be a really interesting, happy medium in a sense to where you have a blend of Mm -hmm. it. So... Yeah, I would say the hardest part for our clients was when they hit PHP. So that's partial hospitalization. So that means they come in from Monday through Friday from they become in from like 830 to 330. And they had been inpatient and they got things going, but then we chuck them back in their home environment. So old habits, old, the same old people, same roles and rituals, and they had to then try to take those skills they learned inpatient and apply them. Um, and that's where a lot of our clients really kind of struggled was that step down and that step back into the community. Um, you know, we talked about burnout, kind of the contribution to that is sometimes we had discharge clients to not great family situations. Um, so that really could be upsetting at times. Um, and I hate to say that we all want easy answers. Sometimes your hands get tied. Um, we are discharging to not great family dynamics, not great living situations. Um, and that can be hard to watch. So knowing that most of the clients are at a younger age and, you know, the family, environment has a huge impact were families involved in some of the treatment sessions like were you ever able to incorporate them as a part of it or was it a standard for them to be incorporated in other aspects of the program yeah so I did not so much unfortunately get to really deal with the families up close I wish I had um because of HIPAA it was hard to integrate families into treatment groups um, because you can't obviously have a family member observing how someone else is interacting with treatment. Right. I would have loved to do a little bit more. I was involved with some family meetings and they used to have family meetings about once a week. Um, they were run by the therapist who was either that PsyD or that um, licensed clinical social worker. Um, and sometimes they would bring me in to talk about some of the habits and roles and routines and things we were doing in OT. Um, so I did get a little bit of connection there, which was nice. I wish there was more. Um, a lot of times in that family training, family sessions, they were doing very hardcore cognitive behavioral psychoanalysis, therapy, family therapy, um, as time would allow. Oh, okay, I see. So what ways can OTs advocate to be like included in the discussion about eating disorder recovery? Because I know 
it's not really something you hear about a lot and not every hospital unit has an OT. So like, what are some ways we can kind of like insert ourselves and show our worth? So I think it's important that we're always presenting. We're always putting out there what we've learned. We're always going to conferences and dialoguing. Um, I think it's important to get involved at a national level. Um, NIDA, the National Eating Disorder Association, is a huge, huge, huge association nationally um, that you can get involved with. They have regional conferences. So I think it's important for OTs to be members of these organizations, but to also put themselves out there to present or offer services or um, go to the regional conference and network. I think it's important for us to network within our profession. So when I left the job, I made sure I reached out to some OTs I know to say, hey, this job is vacant. You should apply. So they didn't absorb that line. Um, they didn't say, hey, there's no OTs out there that want it. So the job is going to go away. Um, that's how my former student is now there being a rock star is that my predecessor knew her and reached out to her and she got involved and then got that job and kind of has done her own thing. So it's important to do that. It's important to go to continuing educations and continually be pushing your boundaries. Um, you know, I know that she has started doing some outpatient OT privately because she is constantly advocating for the role of OT and clients and the um, treatment team are seeing how great it is. Um, so it's that advocacy. It's getting out there. It's making yourself known. It's podcasts like this. <laughs> so you've mentioned, um, you know, CEU courses a couple of times and you mentioned that there is a textbook out there for OT and eating disorders. Uh, what are some specific resources that you're aware of that uh, some of our listeners could maybe check out? So I would definitely start with the NEDA website. It's N-E-D-A um, is what the acronym is. I believe it's NEDA.org. They have a lot of great resources there. You want to familiarize yourself with the community and what they're doing. Um, you also want to familiarize yourself with what the diagnoses look like. You want to know what exactly makes the diagnosis of anorexia, what makes it a bulimia, um, what areas you're going to be looking at, you know, read that textbook, constantly looking at the evidence and not just the evidence in OT. You want to look at evidence in all areas of practice because there might be nuggets or really great things in there that you can learn. I think it's also um, kind of looking at trainings out there that may not necessarily be OT offerings. So I went to a lot of trainings that were offered for social workers um, and that was great because I not only learned a lot, social workers were like, huh, I could really use an OT because <laughs> they saw me there and they were asking questions and I was adding my point of view to topics. And that was important. So perhaps I should already know this being that I'm about to graduate, but how does that work with like other professions, continuing education? You know, can we apply that to some of our yearly uh, requirements or our licensure requirements as well? Or how does that work? So so, yeah, it's a great question. A lot of times it depends on the state. Um, okay. So you have to take continuing ed credits for multiple sources, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. So for your MBCOTR, you have to take continuing education courses for that. And they have a very liberal view about what kind of courses you can take. So a lot of those courses that I was taking outside of the profession, I could count towards CEUs towards my R. Oh, okay. Um, I was, yeah, I was previously licensed in New Jersey. I'm still licensed in New Jersey. They don't care what kind of course I take, which is really interesting. <laughs> that is interesting. They just care. Yeah. They just care that I maintain my R. Um, so when I came here to Florida, I was kind of like, uh-oh. 
<laughs> what the heck's going on? So it's really important to know what your state licensure laws are. And a lot of times there are caveats where a few of your credits can be outside the field. Um, they don't necessarily have to be certified to be AOTA credit givers or state of Florida OT credit givers. They can just be a certified continuing education um, provider. And sometimes states will take that as well. Oh, okay. Thank you. It's complicated. It is complicated. It's super complicated. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't know this either. And, and just, oh my goodness, I'm still trying to figure it out. And I'm, you know, I graduated in 2003. Well, I just think it's so important, especially when looking at unconventional areas of OT, because there are very limited OT specific CEU type courses for many topics like eating disorder, human trafficking, uh, substance abuse even. And so it's just important that clinicians know what other resources can they be tapping into. And especially as an almost new grad, um, it, it is very complicated and confusing. And I recently moved from Florida here to Colorado. And so what little bit mm -hmm. I knew, I was gone. Like it doesn't even apply to me. Yeah. So, so thank you for sharing and that think, and clarifying a little bit. Yeah. The push for um, kind of a more fluid national licensure process should hopefully help this. Um, and the one thing I want to add, and I mean to interrupt you, is that don't be afraid also to reach out to the provider who's giving the CEU, because sometimes it's very similar. Like the, um, so say they're giving CEUs for social workers and nurses, it may be easy for them to also give the CEUs for an OT because it may be a similar state requirement of like a pre and post test, and they just have to put a piece of paper in for you oh okay so yeah so like I took a course in Pennsylvania through a provider who provided um CEUs for psychologists nurses social workers kind of called them they're like oh we've been thinking about adding OT and then they added OT and they were all of a sudden like an AOTA CEU provider oh just like that so, they already had the requirements and all it took was yeah okay. yeah a call so don't be afraid to ask okay that's yeah, great that's awesome. I Thank never you. I never would have thought to do that <laughs> Yeah, they're in the business of, you know, a lot of the CEU providers, that's their bread and butter. Like, they're in the business of of providing CEUs. And if you're going to be a paying customer, then, then it's going to come back to them and take more CEUs from them. It might be worthwhile for them to get that certification. Right. So kind of going off of that, if an OT came to you and asked you for advice on how they could get started in this area of practice and how they could set themselves up for success, what would you say? I would say that you should talk to as many OTs as you can who may be in that practice area or something similar to that practice area. Just to get an idea of what is going on, what their views are, um, what areas of practice they're really focusing on. I would say that you want to look at some of the continuing education out there and what might set you up for success. And as always, because it's my job to say this, you want to look at the evidence. What's the evidence out there? What research has been done? Um, what pearls of wisdom has come from someone else's search that might help you? The great thing about the OTD is a lot of our students are starting to do projects in these lesser known areas of the field, and they're really helpful. There's really great information and data coming out of these projects. Yeah, I definitely can see the value in all of that advice for sure. And it does take multiple approaches in order to become more competent because, you know, when you leave school, you really are just like a generalist, <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, you are. And that's okay. Right. So it, it is good advice to say, hey, you know, pull from several different resources. And I think that's part of what makes us, you know, well-rounded as OTs because yep. our 
field is so broad, you know, and so you, it's really up to yeah. us to go out and seek that information and uh, be the best that we can in those areas that we choose to practice in. And don't be afraid if you're ever in a practice situation, and this is anywhere you are, peel it back to your basics. Like, what does your OTPF say you should be doing? Like, bring it back to basics. Because let's face it, when you're entry level, you don't have all the skills you might need in a specific practice area. And that's okay, because you are educated as a generalist. All OTs are educated as generalists. So it's okay to peel it back to, I'm here to facilitate people returning to occupation. And how can I do that? And that's for any setting you're ever in. And also, you know, most settings are connected. What I learned working in the ICU, I could carry over into eating disorders. What I learned in eating disorders, I definitely carried in into pediatrics and early intervention. And, and everything kind of does connect. You know, I definitely agree with that. Even just looking at non-traditional areas of OT, because, you know, part of my work is also doing a website. And so in my mind, initially, you know, you have these different topics that you kind of want to address. But as I'm delving more and more into the research, there's more and more overlap. So then I'm like, oh, my gosh, where do I even put this information? Where, where is it more <laughs> applicable? Do I say see this other page here? Because, I mean, it really does overlap. And so much of the mm -hmm. core principles apply to every single area. And it's amazing to me. And, and I think it really has helped me in a sense be feel more confident about one day pursuing some of these non-traditional areas because at its core, like you said, we know what we are as OTs. We know the basics. And it is applicable. And then anything you learn on top of that is just making you better and better. Exactly. Okay. Very well said. Well, I actually, Dr. Petrosella, I think that's all the questions we had for you today. Did you have any questions for right. us or anything else that you'd like to add? No, I'm just excited that you guys are highlighting some of these, these niches. Cause a lot of times, you know, the jobs are out there. They're just not well advertised. <laughs> so even if you ever are looking to like, Hey, I want to do eating disorders and you, you see like a local hospital has it, like, don't be afraid to give them a call and see if there's a job or they have OTs. Cause sometimes the, like they never advertise my position publicly. Um, so they're out there if you want to do it. Um, and a lot of times they don't realize that OTs are looking at OT specific places for like a job advertisement. So if there's an area of the field you're really interested in, don't be afraid to reach out and make phone calls. That's excellent advice, especially as Kate and I start to job search here in the next month. Yes. <laughs> so that's great to know. Um, you know, and, and you're right, you just kind of had to put yourself out there. And um, I think I personally would be a little intimidated by like, well, there's not a post, so maybe I shouldn't. But you're right, you just kind of have to pick up the phone and call because like you said, they're not mm -hmm. advertising it because, you know, I've just for fun, you know, looked up different um, job opportunities, even just like looking at like forensic OT. I mean, yeah, sure, there might be like one or mm -hmm. two, but they're halfway across the country or something, you know, but yeah, they're not really yeah. out there. But if I start looking locally, I find that there are some facilities that do have OTs um, in those settings. And so, you know, I, I'll definitely take that advice with me as I go forward in my career. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing all your insight. I have learned a ton. I've made a million notes. I can't wait to look into some more of these things. Um, so we really appreciate your, your time with us today. Yeah. Great. I had so much fun. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. I also have notes written all over my page of stuff to research. So I really appreciate talking to you today. Awesome. Thanks, guys.